Several times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts a teaching with the phrase, you have heard it said. He then goes on to state something that all good religious folk knew to be true. Or was it? Without hesitation, Jesus redirects the entire teaching with these words, but I say to you. He then goes on to teach them something different, which completely changes their understanding of what they previously thought to be true. Surprisingly, but unquestionably, we live in similar circumstances today. Much common knowledge we all take for granted begins with the phrase, everybody knows. Quite literally, we have heard it said for so long, we do not recognize thoughts or ideas that contradict the wisdom of God and lead us away from authentic life in Jesus Christ. Sadly, this same worldly wisdom has also infected a great deal of church teaching as well. In this podcast, the Reverend Elizabeth Moreau explores a different piece of conventional wisdom, examines what is true from a Christian point of view, and exposes how widely held common knowledge can lead us away from God. Welcome to the You Have Heard It Said podcast. Well, hi there, and welcome back to the You Have Heard It Said podcast, and this is Elizabeth Moreau, as was just said. Um, if you've been following along, then you're not going to be surprised to discover that the podcast's uh, topic for today is that of truth. Um, I, I've turned successfully turned one podcast into three. Thank you very much. But truth is a very important topic, and there's so many, so many different things that could be said. Uh, you know, uh, John wrote that um, if everything that was said about Jesus uh, uh, were recorded, it would take up more books than than you know than than the world could contain. And since Jesus claims to be truth, then we have to know that we're delving into a deep subject when we say that we're discussing truth. If the truth about Jesus alone were more books than the world could contain, then clearly the topic is a large topic. Um, the timing of the podcast is also providential, right? Uh, we're talking about uh, what, the, what human beings are from a Christian perspective. We, I talked last time about what it was, um, what, what some of the perspectives in our world are today, but we're talking about uh, what it means from a Christian standpoint today, and we are in the middle of Holy Week, which is the holiest and most important week of the Christian year. Uh, we're headed toward uh, Jesus' bogus trial and his crucifixion, his death. Um, and then after that, we're also heading for Jesus' resurrection. It is the most important weekend in the entirety of the history of the world. Right? This weekend, our weekend, we're going to remember that, and we're going we're gonna to try to live that. We're going to relive it again. And hopefully we'll embrace it a little more fully in our lives. We should be doing that every year, going a little more deeply into the life of Christ, right? So before we turn to the topic, let us open with a word of prayer. Hear my prayer, Heavenly Father, and have mercy upon me, a sinner, and save me. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds to the knowledge and love of you in Jesus Christ. Grant that we may receive your Holy Spirit for the healing of our souls. Illumine our thoughts and enliven our hearts. Teach us in this time so that we may know you and your Son, Jesus Christ, and live. These things we pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So the question before us is, what is the truth about human beings? 
Um, what does it mean to be human? What is the being of a human? And last time I talked about two different perspectives, the first of those that have really influenced the last 150 years. The first of those is uh, the theory of evolution, right? That we are just sophisticated monkeys and um, we are advanced organisms. The world around us is entirely materialistic. We are subject to um, our, our physical needs or desires, whatever drives us. We are simply... Um, a collection of brain cells and body cells. It's a material world, and we're a material being, and we're nothing greater than an animal, right? That's the theory of evolution. And even if you believe that, it's still not satisfactory for the average person, right? I mean, everybody has to have an order, a means of ordering their lives. Um, all people have need that and require that. So if you don't have anything better than that, then um, your life is, uh, I mean, what you end up is you, you try to find some other manner of ordering your life, which is very convenient for, let's just go there, uh, critical theory, right? Critical theory comes along and says, here's who you are. We're going to lump you into this group of people. We're going to take human identity and you're going to belong to this group because you are a female or you're a male or you're a black or you're or a Hispanic or you're white or you're Asian or whatever and then um, uh, it's going to uh, it's going to set our identity based upon our race and our gender and our sexual whatever and more importantly what is really important about critical theory is it sets um, oppressor versus oppressed. Uh, there are certain people in the world who are oppressed and there are certain people in the world who are doing the oppressing and they shall there shall never be any reconciliation between the two. The oppressor dominates, the oppressed then is in a constant fight to be free of domination, right? Now, I will say that critical theory definitely gives um, people a cause for living. Uh, it's a way to order your life, but a lot better than just being driven by, you know, the need to eat and the need for shelter and the need for reproduction. Uh, it's definitely a better way to order your life. But your cause is your group. That's your cause for living is the group to which you belong. And your value is, term, is, is determined by your usefulness to that particular group, right? And that's totally visible in our society, especially the younger a person is. There's, that we are nothing more than our animal appetites, and therefore we are grouped according to our animal qualities, which are race and which are gender, and those are only distinguishing uh, qualities, more or less. Uh, human beings are not really anything one way or the other. It's rather like a flock of birds, if you will. Uh, we're, we're sort of indistinguishable from one another. Uh, we fly in a formation. We um, avoid different flocks. You have ducks, you have geese, you have crows, and we're all going to try to keep from running into one another, and that's who we are. Now, from a Christian perspective, the first denies the image of God in us, and the second one denies the individual humanity, the very essence of being human in each person. All right? Okay, we're living in a world where God is denied and the human being is denied, that being the essence of human is denied, and therefore, well, turns out we're confused. I would vote for that. We're confused. Um, now, I want you to recall where I started with this whole series. I was talking about being in seminary, and I was in, I was, I was looking forward to somebody to getting there, and somebody was going to tell me what's true, right? What is true? There are all these, but when I got there, well, the reality was there are all these different opinions about what is true, and I'm not saying they're not well thought out, and I'm not saying they're not philosophical arguments. Yes, there's all sorts of reason and rationality used in most, right? But um, the professors didn't agree with one another on what what um, it means, what, what truth is, or what it means, what is true, and and uh, I, even the basic facts or whatever and they they certainly could not figure out how to decide they, there wasn't any way to decide between this perspective and that perspective and uh so i came with my personal definition remember it was the act truth then is the accurate depiction of reality 
It seemed to me more of an opinion, and um, uh, and there's less accuracy. But um, you know, I, I didn't really believe Christianity, and I could not believe progressive theology. Once I started reading it, I thought it was just hogwash. And um, so then, of all things, I'm in seminary, and I come across the Bible. What are the odds right there in seminary? Um, but I come across the Bible, right? And um, I, I think it's important for you to understand the the depth of the secular mind that permeates seminaries where your where your clergy are educated. Some are more so than others, but generally speaking, the secular mind has triumphed in our ways of thinking and our categories of thinking, and that is a tragedy for all of us. We need to understand that it is God who orders our world, not human beings. Not even the best philosophers or psychi- psychiatrists or, or um, philosophical theologians, for that matter. All right? Anyway, I came across the Bible, and so I'm reading in Genesis 3, and it's very telling that I did not understand Genesis 3 for like two years or something. I'd been in seminary a while before I went, oh, look at here. Biblical interpretation did not take Genesis very seriously. I mean, it read, read the stories or whatever, and I could, you know, we, we in Genesis, uh, I can't remember, um, um, at one point, Never mind, it was a whole deal on this this sermon series. This girl gets up and she starts talking about how this is an evidence of oppression and and uh, Abraham going to go take the land away from all the uh, from all the Canaanites and everything, and that was oppressive. And I was like, uh, I don't think that's a Christian. Anyway, so but that was that was a, a an experience. I had a lot of experiences in seminary. They're funny, but anyway, so I'm reading the story of Genesis three, right? And I cannot tell you how much I like Genesis three. It's the story of the fall, and as I'm reading that. It's like this light goes off in a dark room. I'm like, wow, I can suddenly see everything around me, right? And the, what, what was accurate, um, it, it, the thing about it is that Genesis 3 was so incredibly accurate. It was accurate about what is wrong with me, and it's accurate about what was wrong with everybody I knew, right? You could, I could see the human condition right there, and especially the desire to be good. Now, mind you, I had even, you know, I had read some psychology, I'd, I'd read some uh, Freud, I'd read some uh, different religious, uh, other religious alternatives like reincarnation and Hinduism. And I'm not saying in depth, I'm not saying I'm authority on any of that, but back at the time I was really searching for what was true. And uh, so I even read some of Shirley MacLaine, and I'm like, Lord, that's a strange group of people. But anyway, um, so so uh, what got me was how accurate Genesis 3 was. And I thought, man, he's smarter than Freud. Whoever wrote this knows, knows human beings better than Freud did, right? Probably not. You probably don't think that's right, but it is. Uh, what, what really got it for me was the desire to be God apart from God. We're going to desire to be God apart from God. So if you know the story of Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, right? Let's run through it real quick. So uh, they're in the garden that God has, has given them. He's created them for uh, one another. They are there and have everything they could possibly want. And along comes the serpent with temptation, and he is offering them the forbidden fruit. And what is the forbidden fruit? The forbidden fruit is to have the knowledge that God has, right? So if you think about the qualities of human beings, what human beings were like in, in the temptation, what happens is that they uh, doubt God is telling the truth. And then they think that God is withholding all the good stuff from them. They're saying, oh, did God really say you can't have this? The servant says that. And they're like, hmm, well, yeah, he's, he's kind of being unfair. He's not going to let me have that. And, you know, he, he said we could have everything else, but not that one thing. And they say that God's too harsh. They are they make him legalistic and said, oh, don't even touch that tree. Well, yeah, he never said anything about touching the tree. He said, don't eat it, right? Don't eat the fruit. 
And they're like, God just wants us to be subservient. He he thinks that we can't live without him. He's, he's withholding all the good things from us or whatever. And so we've rationalized all this stuff, right? Or the woman does as she stands there and then uh, decides that she knows better how to live than God knows how to live, than, than God knows how we ought to live, that she can do a better job and choose for herself rather than let God choose. And if that doesn't describe our current state of our culture, I have no idea what does. We all have an opinion about how best to live, and absolutely almost none of those relate back to who God is and who he created us to be. You know, and then Genesis goes on to the actual disobedience. And if you, like, you know, um, what we actually did, we, how did we rebel? How did we reject God? We did. And that why is the question. The desire was to be wise like God was wise, to eat that fruit so that we could control our own destiny, so that we could make the best decisions for ourselves. We don't even need God. We've got it all figured out right here, right? And the outcome was what? It was guilt and it was shame. They were hiding themselves. They were covering with fig leaves. There's fear and there's alienation, all this denial. I didn't do it. It was her fault. I'm going to blame it on her. And you know, she's gonna blame. you have broken relationships between them and between God. All these different things are occurring. And that is exactly what the human condition is. We're guilty. We're ashamed. We're afraid. Afraid. You know, we're alienated from one another. We're busy hiding who we really are. We deny we're hypocritical. I mean, we blame people. Our relationships all get broken. We can't communicate with one another. How is that not the human condition? All right. How is that not every human being for all time, for all people? It is. That's who we are. Our parents and friends are this way. Every generation before our own is just like this. I mean, the result is that we are totally messed up as a society. Think about what our parents passed on to us uh, and what, how our friends influenced. Think about that. Um, all these little gods are running around everywhere trying to build their best life and without seeking God. And uh, uh, seminary is the especially obvious example. Every professor there thought they were brilliant and ought to be the final authority because they'd done all this research and they knew what it was like. They understood philosophy and they could defend it in a, in a university. And their version was better than everybody else's. And every one of them thought that thing, right? <laughs> that is who we are. Genesis 3, however, only makes sense in light of Genesis 1 and 2, right? What God created us to be. Okay, the positive is, what did we fall from? Oh, we oh, we fell far. Let me tell you, we fell far. Uh, we felt what Genesis 1 and 2 say that we're made in the image of God. That we are like him, that we're serving as rulers in creation. And we possess the qualities that, that God, you know, the first thing is that you are to take dominion. You're to be fruitful and multiply. That we are, we possess the qualities of God in finite degree, right? Um, we, we have the, the ability to co-create with God. That we're going to create, co-create, be co-creators with him, right? Serving as rulers in creation. We're at the top of the, of the food chain. We're at the top of the hierarchy so that we can serve hierarchy. Right, so that we can serve creation, excuse me. Um, but we're at the top of the hierarchy so that we can rule over and serve the creation around us. We possess qualities that God possesses, at least in some limited uh, degree. The qualities such as love or compassion or honesty or truth or justice or caring or serving or, or laughter. I mean, I think laughter is, is, an, is, is certainly of God, you know? We were we are close to God in the garden. We could walk with Him and talk with Him. We we could understand God and and, and we knew Him. Um, and I, I want to say face to face, but that would be sort of stretching it. But um, but we could see God, right? Or even it does say face to face. Perhaps we could see the Son of God incarnate. I don't know. It says they walked and talked with Him in, in the garden. 
we were creatures of incredible dignity and nobility. We were creatures with an intrinsic beauty. And all of that was expressed in every human being, not just in two, but it's in all human beings. Even today, we have this potential for remarkable acts of good. We have astonishing talents and great creativity. We have the ability for tremendous sacrifice and tremendous care of one another, depths of wells of compassion and uh, concern for others. All these are qualities for every human being. You know, you see them throughout history. You see them in people we know, and we see them even ourselves. We possess both the potential for great good, and we possess the potential for great evil. For great evil. Now, if we consider evolution again, for example, there is no final authority at all. Um, in the end, it's just meaningless. Life is just meaningless. What we have is whatever the forces of nature drive us to be. It's survival of the fittest. We are not subjects of God. We're not children of God. Instead, we are subject to nature and natural forces. Then you have critical theory. Critical theory is the other option that's available on the table. That's the dominant option. And these all come in various stripes and versions or whatever. But anyway, I'm just giving generalizations. Critical theory is that the highest good is your skin color or your gender or your sex or whatever. And um, none of the remarkable majesty of the human creature is visible in, in cynical theory. I'm sorry, that there is the name of the book, Cynical Theory. I'm sorry, and I'm reading that. But it's a uh, critical theory. Okay, None of the remarkable majesty of the human creature is found in critical theory. The animals have the same thing as, you know, like, Race and skin and color and gender and, and sex. That's what, that's what they do. Uh, the beauty of each individual human being is erased for whatever the cause is. There's no, the, they get, we have a cause, you know, for living because we are, you know, um, now have some, our, our group that we're identified with. Whatever that cause may be, that's going to be the meaning of human life. I have this idea about working with veterans because they really struggle and they have high rates of suicide, and because I'm so grateful for veterans and the protection of freedoms. And so I was listening to this psychologist talking um, about it, and she was, she was saying, um, you know, that, that the worst problem, she said, you know, they come in here all the time, and she said, I wish that there was some way to deal with their guilt. And she goes, there's just so much guilt. Everyone, I want to come in here, oh, my God, I'm just some way to deal with guilt. And I want to go, oh, my gosh, how is it that we don't know how to deal with guilt? I mean, that's been around from, like, the very beginning, from Jesus' time alone. He said I, that he would take on our burdens, that he would, you know, by his stripes we are healed. Are we offering that? No, we are not. And she's sitting there going, I wish I had something besides drugs to deal with their guilt. And I want to go, yes, well, we have Jesus. Are we offering that? No, 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 we wouldn't want to get carried away. You know, in the last podcast, right, I ended with this statement. A Richard Dawkins cannot explain God or understand faith. He can only mock it, right? But God can sure enough explain a Richard Dawkins and everybody else. You know, if Genesis 3 doesn't exactly explain Richard Dawkins, who he is perfectly, you know, I think it does. He has this desire to be God while completely rejecting God. And even so, he possesses this rationality to dream of a different way, to imagine things differently as a different sort of, of thing. He, he, he exhibits tremendous um, uh, theoretical, I want to say creativity. <laughs> He's definitely creative. But anyway... Um, he, 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 wants to, he wants to order the world around us with his theories, right? And it's truly remarkable. I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. These are really remarkable gifts. They're just grossly misused gifts. He exhibits great intellect, great potential, 
But without God, they lead to nothingness, nothingness. I need to stop here and take a quick break, and I'm going to pick this back up in a minute. But Genesis 3, Genesis 1 and 2, explain what we are. So the question is, what do we do now from here? Elizabeth will be back in just a moment. If you have questions or comments about this or a previous podcast, please send her an email. Her email address is elizabeth at servantsfeast.org. We're back now to You Have Heard It Said with the Reverend Elizabeth Moreau. All righty, we are back from break here, and um, I want to begin by apologizing. I know that I talk too fast, but you know, my mind gets to going, and I'm trying to make a point, and trying to cover a lot of material, and it just gets carried away, and I've never successfully stopped talking rapidly, and I know it would be helpful if I would, but I can't. Um, I'm trying. I'm aware of that. Thank you. But anyway, you know, as, um, uh, as I mentioned, I talked about this. At the beginning of the podcast, when I said that Jesus identified himself with the truth, Christians can never abandon the idea of truth. We, among all the peoples on the earth, must pursue truth above all else because the reality is that we are, um, is that, is that our, our Lord identifies himself with the truth, and Christianity doesn't make any sense apart from that. Um, if it doesn't tell us, it, it, we don't understand anything about our salvation. We don't understand anything about who we are to become without without the truth and without life, right? Uh, it makes a mockery of the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we are celebrating this week, um, or commemorating or reliving this week. Um, we're all big on the way, but the way to where? To what? That's what truth and life are. We're on the way to what? We've got the way to God only knows what because we don't want to get into truth and life. That's too messy, right? In his book, Atheist Delusions, I believe I spoke about uh, this a couple of uh, podcasts ago, David Bentley Hart wrote the book, Atheist Delusions. Um, He points out that the Enlightenment is not really uh, the end of the Dark Ages because there there were no Dark Ages such as they were defined. There there was no period of great superstitious belief in in contrast to holy science or whatever that occurred in the uh, golden age of, of... I don't know, ancient Greece, because it wasn't all that golden and there wasn't a whole lot of reason then either. I mean, there was tremendous reason in people like Plato, but the idea that superstition derived with Christianity is completely ludicrous. It's completely um, uh, disconnected from, from from the facts of that century or those centuries and of that time period. But anyway, he talks about the Enlightenment is not the end of the Dark Ages, but it is the end of Christendom. Okay, it's the end of the 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 nations or the peoples, the group of peoples, the identity of a culture that were associated with Jesus Christ, right? And 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 that's that's significant. That's hugely different than the idea that we are going to try to be separated from what is irrational and what is um, completely. Uh, contrary to to reason and what is superstitious and false, and we're going to enter into something that's really intelligent and reasonable and rational, and we're going to do so by um, by ending uh, confidence in Christ, in Jesus Christ, right? So it's the purposeful steering away of human life and human truth and human the human mind away from Christian belief. And when you move away from that, right, then we're going to have a rational people, and and that is a completely false narrative. Right, the Christian Church was never anti-science at all. 
Uh, I mean, you know, Christianity, I mean, to the contrary, Christianity actually is the source of all science. And it came about to be the case because Christians believe that God created the world and therefore the world was discoverable and we should be finding out what it was. It should reveal reveal something to us about God himself. And therefore, the the Christians have always explored the world and tried to understand it. And and that's what became science. Um, The church believed that God created. and, And so when we hear about Galileo, for example... Galileo is a great example. He's the only example. That's the reason he's such a great example. Can you name any other scientist that was ever persecuted by the church? I mean, seriously. Um, People always say, oh, well, look at Galileo. The church is anti-science. Look at Galileo. Well, the truth of that matter is, is that, first of all, that's grossly inflated. You're, you're, You're taking one example across all of history and saying, well, that, that applies to everything across the board. Now, that's just convenient for the argument you want to make, that we don't need Christianity because it is against science and we should reject Christianity because science is superior. That is not true. Um, but anyway, so we have this one example of Galileo, right? But the, the next person who says that to you, you need to say, well, can you name me another example, for example? I'd like to know that. Do you have know of anybody else who was ever persecuted? Any other As it turns out, if you actually read, read all the facts about it, it turns out that the Pope was correct in that particular circumstance, not Galileo. He was in the wrong. But he is the only one who ever did that. All right? That ever got into, the fact, got into it with the church, and he got into it because his ego was so large. The Pope's was not small, just for the record, at that time. But anyway... Universities were established by the church. Did you know that? All the universities were established by the church. They were originally created for the education of clergy. But they were open to the laity, I believe, in the 12th century. In the 12th century. That is a long time ago. You know, remember I said that Thomas Aquinas was... um, Somebody who caught my attention in seminary, it was because he was so rational and because he was so intellectual. And I hadn't come across anything like that that I'd read. I mean, I read some stuff that was hard to read, but it wasn't rational, I don't think. I don't think, thought, I didn't think it made much sense. Thomas Aquinas lived in the 13th century. Right? He taught that theology was the highest science. And, and that, was his, that was his argument. And, and he, he thought that theology was the highest science to be taught in a university. Do you know when Galileo lived, for example? Galileo lived in the 16th and 17th century, 400 years after Thomas Aquinas was talking about science. You know, reason and rationality did not begin with the Enlightenment. It began with the very first human being in the capacity to think, right? And we have the Enlightenment in the West, but we have it only in the West, not in the rest of the world. And, and in it, we have separated reason from God. And and we're making as we are make when we when we separate reason from God, what that does, and this friend of mine um, says it this way, that it's become not the enlightenment but the endarkenment. We without without if we are removed from the source of all reason and all light, then we can only be in the dark. So the enlightenment wasn't really a great advancement; it was really a great step backwards we have all this knowledge and and i wonder how much of it is truly knowledge you know in a nutshell what happened in the west is that we went from the renaissance um to uh, that began somewhere in the 14th century in italy um and and it 
the elevation of human beings occurred in the Renaissance, aren't we wonderful? And we're going to leave behind, you know, the, the punishments of medieval period. And we're going to enter into this new state with all this. And amazing works were done. Amazing art. Amazing. There are a lot of beautiful things that were created then. But we go from the Renaissance, the elevation of the human being, to the Enlightenment and the elevation of human reason, right? To the development of the scientific method, which is different from the development of science, just the de development of the scientific method, right? And finally, we move to Darwin and the theory of evolution. And after that, we have completely eradicated God from every human sphere. And we have been spectacularly successful in doing so. In fact, our success at eradicating God from every human sphere is visible in the near complete dissolution of civility and ultimately of civilizations. We have produced Marxism out of this particular mindset, uh, the Enlightenment, with the rise of reason and rationality and um, evolution with the rise of science that doesn't require God at all. And we can explain everything without a God. We can, we can produce Marxism and we can... You know, nothing has been as cruel or as vicious or as deadly as communism in the world today. Nothing. There is nothing in the history of Christianity or the history of the world to match godlessness for viciousness. Um, you know, we have been spectacularly successful in this. And it's tragic beyond, beyond, beyond measure. Truth does not cease to exist or does not cease to be, be true just because we don't believe it. The truth is by nature unchanging, right? One of the things that I recognized early on or one of the things I kind of defined for myself or one of the things that helped me understand a long time ago that I came up with it, by definition, truth is unchanging. And that means, this, this is my thing, if something is true at all, then it must be true for all. And if it is true for all, then it must also be true for me. So, in other words, if Christianity were true, and I and this was I was really struggling with this, if Christianity is true at all, if there's any portion of it that is true, then it must be true for all people, not just for me. I mean, you know, just not. We can't just say one religion one religion is good as another religion because if Christianity is true, it's implying one set of beliefs, and, and as opposed to, and I think I've already discussed this. Say Buddhism presents a different set of beliefs, or or what have you. Okay. But if it's true for all people, then it also is true for me. Therefore, if God loves this world and all of y'all believe that and that turns out to be true, then I must also accept and believe that too, right? So anyway, that was sort of my logic. If something is true at all, it must be true for all. And if it is true for all, then it is also true for me. The truth is that human beings are glorious creatures. We have, we are Creatures with tremendous complexity and with amazing creativity. Yet when we attempt to be God apart from God, that was the whole point of the whole first half of this discussion, um, that when we attempt to be God apart from God, we, we create our own purpose and we try to create our own direction. We are reliving the fall in Genesis 3, and it's just spelled out in plain daylight, individually and socially in the world around us. It's like poisoning the root of a plant and then watching it wither and die. You know, we're becoming less and less human by trying to be more and more human and we're in control. We are more and more animalistic and, and less and less refined. Our art, our music, our lifestyle, all of these reflect not what it means to be truly human, but they border on demonic in some cases. In some cases, they're explicitly demonic, right? We've taught men that they should be more like women, right? And we've taught women that they don't need men at all. 
You know, I read this article recently, and it was hilarious. It really wasn't hilarious. It was tragic. But anyway, so this woman had divorced her husband, and um, he was a 21st century uh, male, all the way. He was quintessentially male. Um, you know, he was married, and he uh, was busy helping with the housework, and he was busy helping with the children. He helped with the cooking, and he worked um, all day long and came home and did all the And then it turns out the man was too tired for sex, and so she divorced him because she wanted to be able to. I'm like, well, hello, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious when I read that. I was like, well, you know, he was just too tired for sex, so I divorced him. Oh, my gosh. He did everything that the woman did, and then he was exhausted. That's been the women's excuse for years. I'm too tired. Right? It was so funny. But anyway, we taught women that they can be like men. This isn't funny at all. We rejected the very greatest gift that women have been given. The, the one beautiful thing about being a... Not the one. There are many beautiful things about being a woman. But anyway... The capacity to co-create, to bring forth life, is now a burden in our world. Do you know that several states in the United States allow babies who are born um, after a botched abortion, abortion that isn't effective, they're allowed to starve the baby to death, just leave it there to die? You know, they did that in ancient Rome, too, for example. They uh, took the babies that they didn't want and they threw them out, especially girls, because they, they, you know, they needed men to fight wars and things like that. But girls, you know, they didn't need those at all. One, a family ought to do you, right? And that was sort of the general rule. They threw them out at the end of the street. They had these, like, mass graveyards where, where they could be fed on by wild animals or birds, whatever. They just starved to death. It doesn't matter. Archaeological evidence abounds across the ancient Rome, Right? The sites of these graves where there's all these bones of babies, tiny babies just left there to die. Oh, yeah, we're advanced over the ancient civilization. We're that, Yeah, we are so superior, and we're quite like them. We're not advanced at all. And the greatest tragedy, I think, right now is being perpetrated on our youth and on our young adults. You know, they've lost humanity, and, um, and therefore they've lost the purpose of, of life. They, we have all this hypersexuality now. Oh, God, I'm so tired of talking about sex because we not talk about sex. But anyway, there's this demand. You must welcome me and all of my and all of my myriad sexual expression, however it is. And you know what that reveals? That reveals this insatiable need for love. But it's insatiable, which means it is unsatisfiable, right? Because it's not true. It's not even real. You know, we, we've taught them that they need to continually pursue uh, reflection on the self. What, who am I and what do I want? But searching for self and, and seeking self-love is exhausting. And it can only be, you know, you can only be disappointed in the end because you're just a morass of longing, of unsatisfied longing, of unrealized potential, uh, you know, of unguided possibilities. That's what's inside a human heart. And the longer we look at one's, ourselves, the longer we look internally, uh, the more depressed and the more anxious we become. And this is our society in spades, multiplied, right? Uh, we've, we, we, our young people are busy, you know, medicating depression and anxiety and all sorts of different things like that. And I'm talking young, under 40, because I'm now getting older than that. But anyway, there's nothing inside except for just this confusion and loss and possibility and potential, and they don't know what to do with it, and it's a morass of, of desire and longing. And all along, the truth is this. This is the truth. They are loved. Indeed, they are loved by God intensely and intimately and personally. And God's love is unlimited. You know, the human beings are of priceless value. Because they are the beloved of God, because they are created in his image, 
Nothing can change that bedrock truth. That's true. But when we move away from the truth, we will discover that humans are quite expendable, as we saw in ancient Rome, as we see today, right? As we see in communism, the deaths in the 20th, 20th century, they're just incredible. You know, this is Holy Week, and here we are with Christ's journey, and it reveals everything that we need to know about human, being, about human beings or about being human. Apart from God, we are creatures of death and destruction. We need to know that. We want to be free to do as we please. We think that God is cheating us of stuff, that he's, that he's withholding. We're not going to have any fun. I certainly thought that at one point in my life. And it turn out, turns out that we are capable of unspeakable evil, that we've traded the truth of God for a lie, and that lie leads to death. But it's also the truth that God never gives up. He never abandons us. He will never change. And he, and, and he has given us the resurrection. God will not leave us in the squalor of our choices. He won't leave us to that. He won't abandon us there. You know, we have got to recover the gospel. And I'm not just talking about going to truth and going to church and, and, and talking about Jesus and reading a couple of Bible studies and going on and living secular lives. I'm talking about living the gospel, the power of God in you, the life of God in you, the love of God in you, all of the gospel. We need to reclaim the truth because we need it and because our world needs it and above all because it is true. The gospel is so rich with life and the gospel is so rich with potential and possibility. It is so wondrous. And, and being true, it is inescapable. Therefore, what it says about sin, what it says about evil, what it says about death are inescapable also. And we will live in the truth or we're going to die in lies. The one thing we will not do is go along however we want. In the end, truth remains. There's nothing we can do to change it. It's got, always going to surface always be the way in which we are to live and will always be life for human beings. The truth was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, but it is life to you and me and it is life to the world as well. How many generations must we lose before we remember that we have the truth? Let's close with prayer. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Have mercy upon me, a sinner, and save me. I ask you, O God, to call your people to lift our eyes to you that we may see your glory. Send your Holy Spirit to walk with us, to guide our steps, and to remind us throughout each day of your infinite wisdom as well as the safety we find in the shelter of your love. These things we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Next time, you guys, we are going to take up some of the ideas in our society and compare those to the truth of Jesus Christ. Y'all be blessed now, you hear? You have just heard the latest You Have Heard It Said podcast with Elizabeth Moreau. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcast, or whatever service you might use. Please rate, review, and share this podcast with others. Be sure to look us up on Facebook and like and share this podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, if you appreciate this ministry, please consider making a donation to Servants Feast Christian Ministry through our website. Join us next time as Elizabeth explores and exposes yet another piece of conventional wisdom with the truth of Christ.